Truth Espresso, Episode 77. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. <laughs> and now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. This is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. Well, hello and welcome to this episode of Truth Espresso. This is your host of the Truth Espresso podcast, Daniel Minnick. I hope you are having a wonderful day. And if you're just tuning in to this episode, we are in fact discussing some questions and some principles from a story, a fictional short story that the last three episodes covered, written by yours truly for this podcast. And so, as I often do, I recommend that you listen to previous episodes just to get a good handle on and a background for this episode because it's not going to make much sense if you simply start listening to Truth Espresso from this episode without listening to the prior three episodes because that is the story, the tale of the Superblians that we are going to break down and discuss. In this episode, we're going to look at four biblical lessons from the tale of the Superblians. And so, if you haven't listened to the tale of the Superblians, parts one, two, and three, which are the three episodes prior to this one, go ahead and stop the playback of this episode. Just do it right now and go listen to the tale of the Superblians. Because if you don't, well, bad things could happen. Like you don't understand what we're talking about in this episode. <laughs> but yeah, seriously, if you're just tuning in the last three episodes, go listen to them, then listen to this one, okay? And now, let's start talking about the tale of the Superblians that we just heard the last three episodes. This was a sci-fi story that I wrote to record on Truth Espresso to teach some valuable economic lessons from a free market perspective and also a biblical perspective. So, in summary, our protagonist, Jake, who was a ranch hand in rural Kansas in an open field, saw a UFO. He then went to the police station to find out if he was crazy, and yet the one officer, Matt, there, told him he wasn't and that there are other sightings, but he thought it was some kind of government craft, you know, testing in the open field. But to his chagrin and to the shock of the whole world, it proved to be the real authentic thing as Zorg, the head of an alien sample of about a dozen, landed uh, and talked to people near City Hall, presented the case that they wanted to integrate with humanity freely. They didn't want to say, take me to your leader and negotiate some kind of subjugation. No, these aliens were unique against all the fictional stories and movies. These aliens 
were benevolent and they presented some really good technology. Uh, the example was with sunflower seeds and the aliens demonstrated a technology that would make the plant grow maturely in a minute's time. And so the implications of that would be that world hunger would end because it would be very easy to produce enough food with very minimal effort and in very little time to feed the entire world. The humans glibly agreed to let the Superblians live among them and improve their lives together. And in the course of a year, humanity improved by leaps and bounds and actually became freer as totalitarian ideas seemed to wane a little bit by the wayside. But eventually, when part two of the story started, Jake had seen an article released in the New Dork Times by a certain Dr. Paul Drugman, a popular Keynesian economist, warned that we could be headed for some kind of recession because he was alarmed that a lot of people were now able to save a lot of money and he thought that the savings meant that people would stop spending because there'd be less need to spend and he kind of spinned off the idea of the early overproduction theorists of the 1920s that overproduction and underconsumption would ultimately lead to unemployment and less demand which would lead to economic recession, followed by depression and then poverty. And so Drugman played off that idea, thinking that the increased ability of people to save meant that there was less need to spend money and that spending somehow keeps the economy going. And if that there's less spending because of less need for it, it would ultimately lead to recession, depression and poverty. And, of course, that alarmed a lot of people in the world thinking that they were living in a dream world and that somehow they needed to listen to this man. And ultimately, his ideas started to take off. It started to cause suspicion toward the Superblians living among the humans. And the Superblians would try to make do. They tried to please the humans, but the humans didn't seem to buy it. Their animosity started to increase. The governments started to tax the Superblians. And then the Superblians decided that it was worth it more to work in minimum wage jobs, seeing that the humans valued minimum wage jobs over the evil one percenters at the top, which the Superblians naturally, since they're about 10 times smarter and 10 times stronger than the smartest and strongest humans, the humans were kind of having some issues with a lot of the Superblians and their immense wealth and abilities. And so the Superblians started to shift into the minimum wage jobs, but then this caused problems because that meant that fewer humans looking for their first jobs were getting rejected in favor of Superblians. And so the Superblians just simply could not win no matter what they did because since they were better than humans, the humans now with their renewed mindset geared toward equality of outcome and politics 
would not give the Superblians the time of day. And so after hostilities started to arise and the peaceful Superblians just could not get the humans to like them anymore, and then protests and riots started to develop, human-caused, the Superblians eventually decided that it was time for them to leave. And so the Superblians left after two years of living on Earth, and then with them, the newfound prosperity that they had introduced started to dissipate on Earth. And so a year later after that, so three years after the Superblians had landed on Earth, and one year after the Superblians left... Our protagonist had a friend, Pete, who was kind of caught up in some of the propaganda there. He ended the story by asking Jake, did we just make a huge mistake? Those unsettling words provided an apropos ending to our tale of the Superblians. The intention of my story was to teach economic lessons that I believe are biblical Lessons such as private property, actual ownership of things, free exchange by supply and demand and prices, that savings are a good thing and that they don't destroy the economy, and that central control such as proposed by Dr. Drugman in the story through means such as fiscal stimulus and monetary stimulus are neither necessary nor biblically warranted and that they are destructive to the economy. And my intention in this episode, after reviewing the tale of the Superblians, is to demonstrate and explain why that is the case. And so for this episode, we want to look at four biblical principles from the tale of the Superblians. And so biblical principle number one, I would like to make this claim, the Bible favors private property. Now, just what is private property? Well, it's the idea that an individual human or several humans together can agree and actually own something such that if someone else were to try to take this without the approval of the person who owns it, that that would be stealing. And for the justification for this biblical principle that the Bible favors private property, I present Exhibit A, Exodus chapter 20, verses 15 through 17. This is from the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Thou shalt not covet. Now, when I talk about private property, I don't believe that it just includes something that you happen to hold in your hand, something that is just on your person, immediately available. Private property doesn't just include the food in your hand that you are currently eating, as some socialists want to claim. It includes things like houses and lands. Yes, people can actually own an area of land, and if they build a house, they should be able to own that house. I believe that the Bible presents that. You don't just own the clothes on your back and the shoes on your feet and the food in your hand. You can actually own things that are separate from your person. 
Jeremiah chapter 32 verses 6 through 15 shows the will of God in buying a title to a piece of land. So it actually says that the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah to do this, and it didn't just say to go there and claim it. It actually bought it for a market price. And so God favors market prices. God favors supply and demand. And God favors the idea that there's such a thing as title or ownership in land. Is this the only place in the Bible that shows that land can actually be owned by a human being or several human beings, and that this is recognized by God Almighty. Well, if we go to Acts chapter 5, I know that's not the point of this passage. This is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And Ananias and Sapphira, in attempting to show that they're giving a gift to the church, they sold some land that they owned. And what they did is that they brought part of the price of the land. They kept back some of the money from selling this land. And they gave the rest of the money to the church. And they claimed that what they gave was the actual price of the land. It was the actual money, the total money that they got from selling the land. Now, they kept back some of it, and they gave the rest to the church. And some people get tripped up on this passage. They think that there is some obligation for Ananias and Sapphira to do this. But that's not the problem here. The emphasis was on the fact that they lied about what they gave to the church. When they gave the money to the church, to the apostles' feet, they said that what they gave was the price of the land, but they secretly kept back part of it. So what they did was they lied. That is what is emphasized in this passage, and that is what they are judged for. And so if we read Acts chapter 5 and verse 4, we see the words of the apostle Peter to Ananias. And Peter says, While it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And so, even the Apostle Peter recognized that Ananias and Sapphira actually legitimately owned land, and that they can actually sell the land for money. And Peter himself says that they own the land, and that when they sold it, it was within their power to keep that money. But the problem was that they lied about the fact that they gave all of it when they didn't. That was the error, and that's why they were judged by the Holy Spirit. They lied to God. So their offense to God was not that they kept back some of what they should have given by obligation. No, Peter flatly says that they had no obligation to give this at all. They had no obligation to sell the land. They owned it. It was their choice. And then once having sold it, they had no obligation to give any of the money. But because they dared to lie to the apostles about how much they gave, about the price of the land itself, that was what they were judged for, lying. And so God fully approves of the idea that people can own land and they can sell land. They can buy it, they can own it, and they can sell it. And so the Bible 
flatly, clearly, and obviously favors private property. There are plenty of other passages I could bring up, but these are the most obvious because a lot of socialists have problems with the idea of people being able to be unequivocal owners of land. They think that there somehow has to be only some kind of collective ownership of land that really is government ownership where a few elites get to say what things are done with the land, but that they just don't want freedom for people to be able to own land and buy and sell it. But the Bible recognizes it and God approves of it. Now, the Superblians in the tale of the Superblians owned the technology that they offered. The humans had to agree to the terms that the Superblians offered to receive and own some of this technology. The agreement was not in any way coercive. It was mutual and it was free. The only terms that the Superblians desired were that they get to live among the humans and participate in the economy on earth. Both humans and Superblians owned businesses and could hire employees as needed or sell businesses. They could buy and sell products, they could buy and sell land, they can buy and sell technology. And so the Bible favors private property, and that's what I wanted to express in the tale of the Superblians. And now let's move on to biblical principle number two as we look at examples from the tale of the Superblians. Biblical principle number two, the Bible favors free exchange. So let's look at Leviticus chapter 25 and verse 14. And it says, And if thou sell aught unto thy neighbor, or buyest aught of thy neighbor's hands, ye shall not oppress one another. If you have a law of God that says that neither the buyer nor the seller should oppress one another, what do you have? You have only free market exchange. Now, I recognize that this verse shows up in the laws about the year of Jubilee, but it doesn't mean that it's only applicable then. It is a principle to show that even as God had prescribed in the 50th year, the year of Jubilee, where servants are released and debts are released, free market exchanges are still the norm. There is no difference there other than God requiring debts to be freed and servants to be released. Otherwise, the economy is a free market economy. If you say that, well, then you're not truly teaching free market economics. Well, God is the one who created us and God's the one who created the economy. And so it's free market in as much as God creates the general principles. Now he can set special rules for his people, Israel. And there are some good principles from those laws about the morality of forgiving debts and not charging interest to family members, and so on and so forth. But the point is that other than the special rules that God would make for Israel, and these were not burdensome rules. They were pretty simple and mild compared to the totalitarian governments that we have today. But neither buyer nor seller should oppress one another. That means that the natural prices from supply and demand would determine if someone is oppressing one another. 
And so this is a complete free market exchange if one person has control over the elements of supply and demand and to such an extent that he could coerce the other side against the mutual agreement, then there's oppression. So it's not just the seller who can oppress. Let me reiterate that. Either side can oppress. How does one oppress and where is this coercion? When the transaction is forced without a mutual agreement, obviously the laws of supply and demand determine how a transaction can be just. A free market is the most natural application of the principle of unoppressive buying and selling. And the superblians in the tale didn't threaten any kind of violence. They didn't believe in central planning or coercion, and that central planning or coercion should drive the price of anything. No, they believed in freedom, mutual understanding, cooperation, and supply and demand would set prices at any moment for the most efficient way to grow an economy and prosper. The Superblians lived this way on their planet, and their economy could grow by leaps and bounds. And naturally, you know, when you think about it, when they eliminated world hunger by making food nearly free, that would mean that the prices of food would be next to nothing, as food would be so plentiful on Earth that no one would have to worry about access to food, and our economy could then focus on other things. And so the Bible clearly supports free exchange, while a lot of socialists think that only sellers can oppress and that all the rights must be in favor of the buyer and that always the buyer is oppressed by somehow phantom high prices and that somehow the laws and the governments are constantly having to push for greater and greater regulations to make sure things are somehow in favor of the buyer, even when the laws of supply and demand and profitability mean that prices have to be certain levels, the idealists in government and the socialists are always constantly trying to work things in favor of buyers. But according to the Bible, the buyer or the seller could oppress one another. And so the free market is the only solution to that, so that no one is oppressed. And now, biblical principle number three, and this one is very important and it's a central lesson in the tale of the superblians, the Bible favors savings. And now when I say savings, it doesn't matter if it's personal household savings or business savings or some kind of aggregate national savings. Savings are savings and the Bible favors savings. I mean, you can't simply dispute this. There are plenty of verses in the Bible that make the case for saving money, passing inheritance, down from parent to children. That's a good thing. 
Saving for hard times is a good thing in the Bible. In fact, if we look at an example in Genesis chapter 31, this is where God gave Joseph the interpretation of Pharaoh's dream about the seven fat ears of corn and the skinny ears of corn and the dream about the seven fat cows and the seven skinny cows eating the seven fat cows. And the interpretation was that there would be seven years of plenty, of prosperous growth in agriculture, but then there would be followed by seven years of famine. And so what was the solution? Now, unlike Dr. Drugman's policies that savings are bad and that we need to get people spending and using resources, Joseph instructed Pharaoh to save during the seven years of plenty to handle the seven years of famine. And so it's a good thing to save in the present so that you can spend in the future. This is a very biblical principle. Yes, I know, Joseph and Pharaoh had the hindsight from special revelation about the famine, and so they could plan adequately for that. And so you think that this might not be an applicable illustration for that principle. But consider this, if you don't know that there will be a famine, and you have that uncertainty, how much more should you save for something you can't even expect? And now let's look at the idea of savings, because sometimes in modern economics, in the ivory tower of academia, savings gets a bad rap. Because of the prosperity the superbians brought through their strength and intellect, people could afford more stuff with their money. A greater supply of goods and services meant money could buy more. This led to more people being able to save more money and pay off their debts. There was more financial security. Increased savings are the seedbed for some people to invest in things that could potentially improve lives even more. But Dr. Paul Drugman in The Tale of the Superblians gets leery of too much savings because he thinks it indicates that economic activity is slowing down and could spiral the economy into a depression. As a follower of the Keynesian School of Economics, Dr. Drugman believes in something called the paradox of thrift or the paradox of savings. He thinks there's a real paradox when people save, such as for a rainy day or because they feel they've overspent and are financially vulnerable. Now, Dr. Tom Words in The Tale of the Superblians did explain the paradox a little bit and solve it somewhat, but I want to focus on that a little bit because it's very important. Even a lot of Christians get caught up in this because when you hear things by economists and from politicians in government talking about the need for stimulus, it usually falls in lockstep with this idea of a paradox of savings. According to this supposed paradox, if you and too many other people start saving more money, you're naturally spending less. Okay, so far. Are you following me here? If you start saving more money, you're spending less. No dispute there. But many people's salaries might depend on your spending. If you cut back your spending, people might lose their jobs. 
And so you and they are now cutting back their spending because all of your finances are now tighter. This leads to more unemployment and more cutting spending and more unemployment and further cutting spending and you get the idea. The economy is now poorer because you and other people thought you had to cut back. It doesn't matter the excuse, even if you were all under the weight of crushing debt. If you start saving to pay back your debts, the economy would start spiraling down like an airplane in a tailspin. You may think you're doing yourself a favor by saving for your own good. There may be no other obvious alternative. I mean, it's like, duh, I've overspent. But remember, you're not an economist like Dr. Drugman. You don't see the big picture like he does. You may think you're improving yourself by saving, but the economic karma of the chain of effects from all that will ultimately come back to bite you because all that reduced spending and subsequent unemployment makes the economy poor. As Dr. Drugman is known to say in his books, your spending is my income and my spending is your income. If you have never heard of this supposed paradox, it might seem like an open and shut case once you hear it. We might think, wow, I've always thought savings were virtuous, but now it all makes sense. Savings can be a great evil because it harms other people. Before we become casualties to this alleged paradox, we need to think through all the factors. The Bible knows absolutely nothing of this phenomenon. The Bible salutes savings over and over and over again, and it rewards voluntary charity. So, if that's the case, and the Bible is true, how do we overcome the supposed paradox? Well, first, we need to recognize why recessions happen in the first place. Likely, when you have some nationwide cutting back, it's because there was some nationwide problem. Well, why would there be some nationwide problem? Why would millions of people do the same wrong thing at the same time in one nation? The only reason that makes sense when you have lots of people with different personalities and tastes and skills and needs doing the same wrong thing is when you have a few people holding the reins of power and pushing the levers in that one direction. Now, let's take the real estate bubble over a decade ago for an example. Why did so many people buy houses and flip them? Why did they all think it was a good investment? And why did they all come up with that idea at the same time, just all of a sudden in that one decade, not a decade before that or before that, it was just in that one time, why did that become the conventional wisdom of that time? Maybe because the Federal Reserve slashed interest rates to 1%, to encourage more borrowing. Maybe because politicians touted the idea of a home ownership society at the same time. And maybe because Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, so-called government-sponsored enterprises, would be subsidized by the government to buy risky loans that otherwise would not have been made with purely free market forces. 
Yes, I am saying that it was indeed a government-induced problem from start to finish, despite what you may have been taught. If you think it was just greed, quote-unquote greed, spontaneously growing, you haven't studied the issue much. You mean greedy Wall Street bankers all of a sudden just got really, really greedy, and they all thought about how to satisfy their newfound greed in the same way, at the same time, just for some reason in that decade and not before? Let's be real here. When you have a Federal Reserve Bank with the power to set the price of borrowing money and a central government that can give tax breaks to buy houses and selectively subsidize certain enterprises to buy loans they otherwise would have no reason to buy, of course that encourages a lot of people to play a housing market like a Las Vegas casino. They think there's a lot to gain and little chance of losing. And you think that's a free market thing? But can such a scheme go on indefinitely? Some people thought. Or the analysts in the news would tend to say that it would just taper off at some point. They laughed at people like Peter Schiff who said that a crash was coming. They thought that it would just plateau. Of course not. That makes no sense. Someone has to pay all the invisible costs of this boondoggle. Wealth isn't being created out of thin air when this kind of situation happens. A lot of wealth is being artificially redistributed from other sectors of the economy to real estate. It misallocates resources and encourages a lot of careless debt. Now someone has to pay the mortgages. When the crunch comes and people can no longer flip houses because of that boom, they're left with high mortgages that need things other than fairy dust to pay them back. So what happens? People need to cut back their spending because they're no longer as rich as they thought they were on paper. They need to pay their debts. They need to cut back their lavish activities that they were doing because they thought they were wealthier than they were. This means there will be some job losses and recession. <gasps> recession! The question is, is a recession always a bad thing? We would tend to be taught that a lot in polite society and in the media, right? That recession is a boogeyman and that it's always a bad thing. But is recession always a bad thing? We really need to think about it. If the cause of the recession was bad activity, like unsustainable investments, then the recession itself is the cure to that bad activity. It may be painful, no doubt. I'm not saying that it, there's some way to have a recession where no one is suffering. But, you know, sometimes... A cure or a treatment carries some suffering, carries some pain as you recover from the bad activity. Some people during a recession may need to find a new line of work where things make sense. But that's the unavoidable solution. Now, from the tale of the Superblians, think about the candy bar example that Dr. Tom Words talked about. The store could suffer some lost revenue if you stop buying all those unhealthy candy bars. But it's obviously better for your health for you to recess on that spending. 
Sectors of the economy can only be profitable if they're sustainable for the long term, not some big bubble waiting to pop. Now, let's unwind the paradox of savings. When people cut their spending, yes, that can cause some difficulties in sectors of the economy. But remember what Tom Words explained. Savings are really deferred spending. Savings don't simply evaporate into the ether as some activities retract. Yes, some people can experience pain temporarily, but it's the same kind of pain that uh, a medical treatment would do to cure a serious underlying condition. When savings are rebuilt, they become capital for better investments later. After all, we simply can't just eat money. We need the things that money can buy, like food and clothing and shelter. And so as people pull back their spending habits and rebuild their savings, eventually the market will start to clear. Things will level off and then more spending activity will pick up. But if the government gets out of the way and stops trying to inflate bubbles the spending would be sustainable on things that would make sense. And so the economy would then recover after a recession. It would level off and healthier spending will start happening. Now, Jean-Baptiste Say was another French economist in the 19th century who argued for the free market. Ah, 19th century French economists. I wish there were more French economists like these. According to what is called Say's Law, or the law of the market that is often attributed to Jean-Baptiste Say, the supply of products creates its own demand. Now, what he meant by that doesn't necessarily mean that supply necessarily creates demand. It just means that the source of demand itself can only be supply. Naturally, demand will be present when things are available. You can't demand an iPod unless an iPod is actually there. And Say's Law recognizes that the market really has to do with the goods and services, not money itself. Money itself is really a medium of exchange between various goods and services. And some things might be deferred until later, but... The whole idea is that people need or want goods and services. And so when they stop spending, they're not starving themselves. They're not saying, I hereby exit the economy because I overspent. No, there's a correction, as it's called. A recession is actually a correction. The goods and services themselves are really what we want, and money is simply a tool that goes in between buying and selling. And therefore, when something like a recession takes place, you know, as I've said before, when the government creates a bubble that bursts, it's not as if goods and services simply vanish. It's that things that were allocated wrongly need to shuffle around to new owners that would likely make better use of them. And some people have to accept some losses, unfortunately. Some people have to rebuild their savings eventually to restart healthier activities. But today's need to save is tomorrow's ability to spend or invest. But trying to spend tomorrow's resources today only leads to poverty. 
and those whose livelihoods depend on unsustainable spending are living on borrowed time. Think about this. We all need to spend money on something. We will spend money. The downward spiral of a recession is only temporary until savings replenish. Then, as things rebalance to make more long-term sense, people can spend and invest in things that are sustainable. So this is how we overcome the paradox of savings, according to Keynesian economists and people like Dr. Paul Drugman in the tale of the Superblians. Recession is its own thing, and it will keep getting worse and worse until it can be corrected by some kind of public policy. But the Bible. And free market economists recognize that a recession itself is a correction to something that is unnaturally caused by the government, and an asset class boom will inevitably bust. And the bust is the cure to get things back to sustainable levels, to get them back to normal. And so, savings is not a problem. Savings is for a rainy day. Savings is to build up capital stock for investments and. Savings and also be to correct your situation if you've overspent and pay off your debts and eventually over time things will start to correct and everyone will be better off. This is the simple wisdom we find from the Bible. Prosperity depends on savings. Savings come before spending. Let's look at Proverbs twenty-one twenty. There is treasure to be desired, and oil in the dwelling of the wise. But a foolish man spendeth it up. Contrary to the simplistic idea of Keynesian economics that it's just spending that drives growth, it matters what the spending is. It matters if the spending actually produces things or just consumes things. And you need to save before you spend. Proverbs thirteen twenty two. A good man leaveth an inheritance to his children's children, and the wealth of the sinner is laid up for the just. But drugmen in the story would tend to think that an inheritance is a bad thing because it's potential spending that's withheld. The Bible can't possibly endorse Dr. Paul Drugman's ideas about aggregate demand and too much savings. Leading to depressions and poverty in society. On the contrary, savings are always ultimately the solution, and savings must precede spending. And now I know that was a little bit long-winded to talk about some modern economic paradigms to illustrate the biblical concept that the Bible does indeed favor savings against the conventional wisdom of this world. But now I move on to the final biblical principle derived from the story of the tale of the superblians. Principle number four: the Bible does not favor fiscal stimulus or monetary stimulus. So the idea of fiscal stimulus or monetary stimulus assumes that a government ultimately controls the economy, whether directly or indirectly. As we have seen earlier, the Bible clearly supports private property. There are strong words and strong laws against stealing. The fact that a law against stealing is in the Ten Commandments itself shows that God respects true, unadulterated ownership. 
and stealing, lying, and murdering often go hand in hand. So three of those Ten Commandments, and I dare say that often all the Ten Commandments go in hand in hand. But let's look at some examples from the Bible. Leviticus 19.11 says, You shall not steal, neither deal falsely, neither lie one to another. So there you have stealing and lying mentioned together. Jeremiah 7, 9, will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and burn incense unto Baal, and walk after other gods whom ye know not? So there you have stealing, killing, adultery, lying, and idolatry all mentioned there. So the people of Israel who worshipped Baal started to break a lot of God's commandments. John 10.10, Jesus said, The thief cometh not, but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. So Jesus ties together thieves, stealing, killing, and destroying. So usually, if you have a propensity to steal, you might have a propensity to lie about it, and you might have a propensity to kill, to keep your theft intact. And I'm going to explain why I think that things like fiscal stimulus and monetary stimulus are in effect veiled theft. Dr. Drugman mentioned fiscal stimulus and monetary stimulus a few times in the tale of the Superblians as a solution to the horrors of savings. So let's talk first of all about fiscal stimulus. Fiscal stimulus usually takes either of two forms, cutting taxes or increasing government spending. Of course, I would be in favor of the tax cut solution if it were just simply pure cutting taxes. Government's too big and steals too much in taxes as it is. Simply cutting the robbery, as I would believe it to be, and giving people back more of the purchasing power that they earned through their labor is just and biblical. But too often, governments will only increase spending, which is simply more theft, in my understanding. Sometimes governments will cut taxes, but increase spending with it, which results, unfortunately, in even higher deficits and borrowing. That's not ideal either. When the government spends more money, it redistributes what it steals in taxes to give to preferred recipients. Usually, since there are no realistic market forces determining the costs, the government will overpay for things, naturally. And since they don't have to take risks or be profitable, why worry about bad investments with other people's money? Remember, if you listen to the episode where I interviewed Dr. Sean Rittenauer, he worked for two years at the Bureau of Labor and Statistics, he heard things like, well, it's good enough for government work, or we don't have to turn a profit, because they were paid out of tax money, which is essentially coercive. And so when the government simply gives money from taxes and spends more in the name of fiscal stimulus and they give to various pork barrel projects, the insiders make out like bandits off of the backs of taxpayers who involuntarily funded these endeavors. Now, what is this other than theft? The Bible is unequivocally against this kind of theft and exploitation. 
Remember Amos 3, verse 10 from the last episode. It says, quote, For they know not to do right, saith the Lord, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. Unquote. And so this is what God says about governments. They don't know to do right when they store up violence and robbery in their palaces or in their chambers of Congress or in the White House. So that's fiscal stimulus. Normally, government just spending, thinking that they need to buy things on behalf of people who cut back their spending. So now let's talk about monetary stimulus. This is where the real wizardry of modern, unbiblical economics happens. The government, via the Federal Reserve, controls the supply of money and the issuance of money. In other words, legalize counterfeiting for me, but not for thee. Because of this, when a recession happens, we may see things like rate cuts, quantitative easing, so-called, or other means of creating new money. Remember that the Federal Reserve cut rates down 1.5% in response to the COVID-19 pandemic early on. The idea is that economic activity would slow down and that people might need easier credit to spur economic activity. You know, it's all about spending, and if people cut back on spending, things go into a tailspin. And we can't have that. Of course, that's not what would happen. But people have been led to think that. So now we turn to the government. The government's got to spend on our behalf. The government could do that because they don't have to worry about profit and loss and making money from an honest day's wage, and so they have the tools to spend when we can't, when we're overspent, and when bad things are happening, we need them to spend money, and so how do they do that? Well, the, the Fed can cut rates to help us spend, too. Or the idea is to encourage us to spend, even when it wouldn't make much sense. We need to save. And now a similar thing happened with the Fed cutting rates. If you remember back after 9-11, the September 11th attacks, when the Fed cut rates down to 1%, and President Bush tried to encourage Americans that going to Disney World and shopping was the patriotic response to terrorism. Of course, with monastery stimulus at the helm, what happened? We did our alleged patriotic duty and inflated a real estate bubble. And remember, as I talked about in earlier episodes of Truth Espresso about inflation and banking and interest, none of that has anything whatsoever to do with a free market. Interest rates are the price of borrowing money. All prices should reflect supply and demand in the market, including the supply of money itself. A transaction is unjust if it is controlled on one side, as we saw. The buyer and seller cannot oppress one another. A central bank that can artificially command interest rates violates the law of God, plain and simple. There is no provision in the Bible for anything resembling a central bank who has control over the supply of money and interest rates, period. This situation lies about the value of money and the supply of money, and it steals purchasing power from honest labor to give wealth to frivolous spending and investment. 
Since money is half of every transaction, think about it. This arrangement is purely destructive and totalitarian and unbiblical. If we don't like hand-picked technocrats controlling sectors of the economy, we should be even more against a small panel of hand-picked technocrats controlling the supply of money and interest rates. Now think about it. If you think an agriculture czar or a car czar or a technology czar would be bad for an economy, well, then how much worse is a money czar who can counterfeit on demand, embezzle, and steal the fruits of your labor? Remember, the only thing that gives dollars value is that they are backed by the blood, sweat, and tears you put in with your labor to create goods and services. A counterfeiter can steal wealth by printing extra units of money to buy up things people worked to produce. And a central bank like the Federal Reserve is exactly the same as a counterfeiter, and the government benefits from this institution. If you have listened to earlier episodes of Truth Espresso, I hope by now you can see the Federal Reserve for what it really is, a legalized engine for theft, bribery, and lies. There is nothing, absolutely nothing, even remotely biblical about it, period. Proverbs 28 verse 8 talks about one who, by usury and unjust gain, increases his wealth. Proverbs 11, verse 1, A false balance is abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. Proverbs 16, 11, A just weight and balance are the Lord's. All the weights of the bag are his work. Lying, cheating, and stealing through a monopoly on the supply of money, creating inflation, controlling interest rates, can only result in false and unjust balances. The scales are always in favor of the governments and the banks and not in favor of the honest laborer in the exchange as their robbery is stolen through inflation and spending by the powers that be. All forms of so-called monetary stimulus, such as Dr. Paul Drugman in The Tale of the Superblians would propose, are abominations to God. They destroy freedom and they steal. The ideas behind them are not Christian at all. Dr. Drugman in the story thought both fiscal and monetary stimulus would be necessary means to quell recessions that he thought would happen when people saved money. Now, I attended my tale of the Superblians to show that freedom and respect for God's laws of property, free exchange, and voluntary charity are what lead to prosperity. Governments naturally seem to go against the grain of this. And what's taught in universities that are funded by government naturally teaches things that favor government control of things. The bigger they are, the government, and the more control they have, the more they seem to violate biblical principles of economics. The economics profession is filled with the ideas of John Maynard Keynes and socialism that are exactly the opposite of biblical economics. Dependence on government as the solution to problems in the story led to protests and riots. 
Most people ultimately turned on the benevolent superblians because they allowed ideas of so-called fairness and equality to fuel the fires of hatred and class warfare. Instead of freedom under God's simple rules being the source of justice, people thought society had to be engineered by some kind of central planning. Over time, people became suspicious and resentful toward the Superblians. Instead of appreciating how the Superblians drastically improved their lives, people became envious of how superior the Superblians were. They ultimately harmed the economy and themselves by punishing the Superblians for being too prosperous. It didn't matter as much that world hunger had ended. What mattered was that superblians and some humans were much wealthier than others. They broke the tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet. This led to believing a lie and breaking the ninth commandment. They also broke the eighth commandment of stealing. They justified this by promoting engineered equality as if that were justice. Striving against the Superblians and exploiting them ultimately led to the Superblians leaving Earth. For a while, people seemed to be happy. Good riddance! After seeing bankruptcies and declining living standards for all, Jake's friend Pete finally had the sneaking suspicion that he may have shot the goose that laid the golden egg. And so, those are four biblical principles that I have gleaned through the story, The Tale of the Superblians. And if you haven't listened to them, once again, I encourage you to listen to parts one through three. The Tale of the Superblians and the four biblical principles are that the Bible favors private property. The Bible favors free exchange. The Bible favors savings. And finally, the Bible does not favor fiscal or monetary stimulus. And so, this concludes, for the time being, a series of episodes discussing economics topics. And so, if you like theology, you know, doctrine, study of God, and other things that are not related to economics, then stay tuned for more episodes of Truth Espresso, as I'm planning to start my focus more on episodes that have to do with theology, the doctrine of God. Uh, I'm going to do a series on Jehovah's Witnesses, and we might have some guests to look forward to to discuss various topics that are not necessarily related to economics, so stay tuned. Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. Good morning, and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso. 